BC road renewal takes a detour. These comments have obviously made a lot of us very nervous. Backlash over comments from the federal environment minister that had him pulling a U-turn over transportation funding. Ride-hailing drivers fight for better pay. The protest that left customers at the curb. And Harry and Meghan hit the slopes in Whistler, drumming up support for the Invictus Games. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. It's a hot button issue and one of frustration for drivers, roads and infrastructure around the province and the desperate need for expansion. That's why comments from the federal environment minister suggesting Ottawa would not be funding new road projects drew some sharp criticism. Aaron MacArthur is live with more on what was said and why it touched a nerve here in B.C. Aaron. Yeah, Chris, Stephen Gilbo's comments probably landed quite favorably in Quebec, where there's a decent amount of support for environmental issues. The reaction in the rest of the country was considerably more hostile, including here in B.C., where so many infrastructure projects require federal dollars. At 5 p.m. on any given day, traffic in Metro Vancouver is usually at a standstill. The region is undergoing some significant upgrades... But now word the federal government might not be a partner when the rubber hits the road. Well, the crazy carbon tax minister has done it again. Stephen Gilbo, the federal environment minister, was speaking Monday at a transportation conference in Montreal when, according to the Montreal Gazette, said our government has made the decision to stop investing in new road infrastructure, suggesting people take transit or alternative options saying the analysis we have done is that the network is perfectly adequate to respond to the needs we have. Reaction was swift around the country. The premiers of Alberta and Ontario outraged online at the comments. BC Premier David Eby also concerned about the tone the comment sets. These comments have obviously made a lot of us very nervous uh, that they're not going to be the partner for us on these infrastructure projects, and we really do need them at the table. Moving goods... A much bigger component of this discussion, Vancouver is Canada's busiest port, seeing hundreds of millions of dollars in goods pass through every day. There are significant choke points that remain a barrier to moving those goods. The Vancouver Board of Trade says the region needs solid commitments from the federal government to keep the region growing. The federal government has yet to um, implement the permanent transit funding of $3 billion doesn't start till 2026. We have already been growing exponentially and that's going to continue. So we need the federal government to be at the table with us. Wednesday, Gilbo did backtrack. I was talking specifically about projects like the Troisième Lien that the, the, the CAC government in Quebec wants to, wants to move forward with. But for municipalities like Abbotsford, which see congestion on a daily basis, hearing about even the possibility of investments being withheld is troubling. It's not an expense to the government. In fact, I would argue that it is an investment that will help grow the economy. All right, Aaron, so the minister backtracked. What does his boss, the prime minister, have to say about this? Yeah, Sophie, you saw in this story, uh, the leader of the opposition got up and hammered the government today in question period. It was the prime minister who stood up to answer those questions, saying the liberal policy on infrastructure spending hasn't changed since 2050, trying to undo some of the damage that the environment minister caused. But that seed has already been planted. It will be interesting to see how this issue grows or if it dies on the vine. 
All right, thanks for that. Aaron MacArthur reporting live tonight. Now, more on the importance of roads in the moving of goods in this province. The Port of Vancouver connects Canada with approximately 140 to 170 countries each year, enabling the trade of about $305 billion in goods every year. It sustains more than 115,000 jobs. That's $7 billion in wages through port activities and generates nearly $12 billion in annual GDP across Canada. We found out today the province is committing $76 million to upgrade the Barrowtown pump station in Abbotsford. Those pumps are critical to protect Sumas Prairie from catastrophic flooding, like what we saw during the atmospheric rivers of 2021. Grace Key has more. The importance of the Barrowtown pump station was highlighted back in 2021 when floodwaters breached the Sumas River dike. As part of the area's flood mitigation plans, it's getting a major upgrade with funding from the province. I am uh, proud to announce that the province will be providing the full funding of $76.6 million to Abbotsford for the Bar Barrowtown pump station improvements. Upgrades include adding a six-meter flood wall, upgrading the debris screen, replacing motor pumps, transitioning to a dual substation, and replacing sandbags with concrete blocks. The province saying they can no longer wait for the federal government to come forward with funding. For a second uh, Sumas pump station uh, to take pressure off of this pump station and uh, for support here, but we can't wait. That process is taking too long. We need to make sure that this pump station will be protected for the next atmospheric river event here in the valley. This is just one part of the plan for flood mitigation. Much more work needs to be done to protect homes, farms and the trade corridor. Without adding a Sumas River pump station or creating habitat enhancement flood storage area, Semeth First Nations remains unprotected, as does the west side of Sumas Prairie the U.S.-Canada border crossing, rail crossing, and portions of Highway 1. The 2021 floods could have been much worse if the pump station failed. These improvements will help safeguard the community from a future severe weather event. Grace Key, Global News. Charges against three men in a high-profile B.C. drug bust have been dropped after it was revealed one of the police officers involved in the case was also under investigation. That officer eventually quit the force before his dismissal. But as Kristen Robinson reports tonight, Victoria's top cop is now facing tough questions about what happened. This operation successfully targeted the top of the fentanyl trafficking pyramid in British Columbia. In late 2020, Victoria police showed off a huge haul of fentanyl, cash and weapons seized in a joint operation with the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit. More than a year later, charges were laid against three men in connection with the $30 million drug bust known as Project Juliet. This is a, a strong reminder to those that are actively involved in criminal activities and criminal enterprises uh, that the police departments uh, here locally and, and also our integrated units and our partnerships throughout the province of BC uh, that we will stop at nothing. A recently released BC Supreme Court decision shows the case fell apart after it was revealed Victoria police allowed an officer under criminal investigation for alleged corrupt practice to take an active role in the initial investigation. Justice Catherine Murray claims investigators tried to hide the fact now disgraced former officer Rob Ferris was involved by claiming the probe started in late June 2020 when it actually began in early May. 
Not only did police not mention the first investigation, they obscured it, she wrote. Who dropped the ball? Well, I think there was a number of mistakes that were made. Um, I, I can tell you that at no point in time uh, was there any attempt to try to derail the process or to mislead the court. Murray's judgment comes after one of the accused, Brent Van Buskirk, successfully applied to access details about Ferris's role in Project Juliet. Charges against Vu Bao Nguyen and Brian Bala were stayed a year ago, while the Public Prosecution Service of Canada confirms charges against Van Buskirk, who was on parole for the 2004 murder of Ravi Nutt in Saanich at the time of his arrest, were stayed on January 19th. No reasons were provided on the record. Now it's clear that there were several points of failure in our processes, and I apologize for our contribution to this outcome. Although the Crown claims that Mr. Ferris played an insignificant role in the first investigation, the Crown's actions in staying the serious charges against Nguyen and Bala belie that, as do Vic PD's efforts in concealing the first investigation, wrote Murray. In Project Juliet, investigators misled the Crown, defence and issuing justices by concealing the existence of the first investigation. We have made changes and we have learned from this and we're going to be better. Kristen Robinson, Global News. One person has been arrested and charged after a man was stabbed in the chest near the Main Street SkyTrain station. Vancouver police say two men were arguing near Main and Terminal Avenue Tuesday when the dispute turned violent. A 45-year-old suspect allegedly stabbed a 51-year-old victim a number of times. That victim was taken to hospital with serious but non-life-threatening injuries. Witnesses at the scene called 911 and Vancouver police arrested the suspect. Richard Angelo McDonald has been charged with aggravated assault and he remains in police custody. Councillors from the Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations are hoping to fill three current vacancies on the Vancouver Police Board. They say it would be an important step in reconciliation. Catherine Urquhart reports. After Faye Whiteman suddenly resigned from the Vancouver Police Board amid allegations the board's structure is flawed, it resulted in a third empty position on the board. Indigenous leaders are calling for those seats to be filled with their members. Part of the UNJIP strategy in relationship, partnership with the City of Vancouver is uh, having appointments from the three local nations appointed to the police board. And that's been a vision since we signed that uh, strategy recently with the City of Vancouver. Those three First Nations are Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh and Musqueam. Interviews are now underway with some candidates. The Ministry of Public Safety and Solicitor General told Global News, the ministry is currently working with the Musqueam Indian Band to appoint a representative to the Vancouver Police Board. Squamish Nation says the appointments are a vital aspect of reconciliation, noting many members live on the downtown east side. And there was that incident in 2019 outside the BMO when an Indigenous man and his granddaughter were handcuffed while trying to open a bank account. I think it just highlighted the challenges we're facing. In addition to the Vancouver Police Board appointments, the province is working on legislative changes to the Police Act, ones which will remove mayors from police boards. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Hundreds of people marched through Vancouver's downtown east side this afternoon to honour the lives of missing and murdered women.
The 33rd annual Women's Memorial March began at Maine and Hastings with attendees making stops to commemorate where women were last seen or found. Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit and gender diverse people are all too aware of the reality of violence in the community. According to the Assembly of First Nations, Indigenous women make up 16% of all female homicide victims and 11% of missing women. Yet Indigenous people only make up 5% of the population in Canada. We shouldn't have people missing and murdered in our, our beautiful country that is so advanced in security uh, in all levels. It means a lot that they're getting recognized and just it's good to see everyone down here. The annual Women's Memorial March has been held since 1992 when community members gathered to mark the murder of a woman on Powell Street. Dozens of Uber and Lyft drivers parked their cars and picketed at YVR this morning. As Alyssa Tebow reports, the two-hour work stoppage was part of a worldwide campaign calling on the ride-hailing companies to treat and pay drivers better. Shame on Lyft! Shame on Lyft! Chanting shame on Lyft and shame on Uber. Ride-hail drivers took their frustrations to a picket line at YVR Wednesday morning. We want a fair wage and uh, at least we can run our comp uh, families. The biggest issue, they say, is rate of pay. Uber came out here in 2020. We are still getting the same wages. Not even a single cent has been increased. Last fall, BC introduced legislation to ensure ride share and food delivery app drivers get paid a minimum wage. But drivers say despite working long hours, most are making less because they're only paid for the time a passenger is in the car. I was online for 17 hours. I made $180. We have our own car, our own maintenance, our own gas. Doing services everywhere, downtown, busy time, night time, drunk people. Do we deserve like only this much money? The strike lasted two hours from 10 a.m. to noon. But not all drivers decided to stop work. I don't know. You should know. The protest was part of a global day of action with similar strikes in the United States, Mexico and Britain. The pain is very low for the driver right now. We're bleeding, we're bleeding. In a statement, Uber Canada says drivers choose the platform because of the flexibility it gives them, adding that the vast majority of drivers are satisfied. And as of last quarter, drivers in Vancouver are making $36 during engaged time per hour before tips. The gig economy is a big industry in BC. The province estimates there are 11,000 ride-hailing drivers and 27,000 food delivery drivers. We want to make a decent living because we live in this country and we are part of the community. These workers say they eventually want to unionize. Alyssa Thibault, Global News. It turns out Richmond won't be getting a supervised consumption site after all. The idea sparked two nights of angry protest with councillors ultimately voting in favour of it. But now health officials say there are no plans for a facility in Richmond. So why was the issue raised in the first place? That's coming up next on the News Hour. I was just telling everybody to get down, get down. Football fans run for their lives at the Super Bowl parade. How Kansas City's celebration turned deadly later on the news hour. Plus. It says Matthew's Sugar Cube and Royal Cigarette Butt. 
King George's discarded cigarette and other oddities stored at the Vancouver Archives coming up later. First, though, an unexpected twist tonight in the heated debate to open a supervised consumption site in Richmond. That's right. Jordan Armstrong has been working on this story for us and joins us now from the newsroom. Jordan, what's the latest? Chris, this is such an odd one. Two nights of marathon meetings at Richmond City Hall. Lots of yelling, lots of shouting, and it appears it was all for nothing. The idea of a safe consumption site on the grounds of the city's hospital drew a raucous response. Late last night, council voted 7-2 to two in favour of asking Vancouver Coastal Health to explore the possibility of one. But today, Coastal Health said it's not on the table because, in their words, it would not be the most appropriate service for those at risk of overdose in Richmond. That pretty much echoes what Premier David Eby said on Tuesday. And I had a conversation uh, uh, through staff with uh, Vancouver uh, Coastal Health. Uh, my understanding is uh, that they're trying to get a better handle on uh, why Richmond is bringing forward this proposal at this time, whether what's proposed actually meets the needs in Richmond, because uh, from their perspective, this is not uh, what is immediately needed in that city. So the big question tonight, why then was this brought forward in the first place? The councillor who tabled the idea is Cash Heed. He says there were 26 overdose deaths in Richmond last year. B.C. is in the middle of a public health emergency, and he believes Richmond needs a place to connect drug users with health care. Heed accusing the premier tonight of caving to political pressure. We were willing to work with Vancouver Coastal Health Authority to figure out what would work in Richmond. If you look at the motion, that's what that says, realizing that they have the lead on this as we go forward. So we were encouraged to get that letter, but then it seems to be politicized because the premier has come out and said, well, no, uh, you know, we don't really need that here. 26 people died. Tell those to the family that have lost the loved ones. Tell them to the families that are going to lose their loved ones in 2024. B.C. is in a provincial election year. For a long time, Richmond was B.C. Liberal territory, but now it is home to three NDP seats. And clearly this was not a politically popular idea in Richmond. No mention of politics in a statement from Coastal Health. They say they considered public health data in rejecting this idea. But still a lot of questions tonight about why this suddenly blew up and then just as quickly disappeared. Chris? Maybe eventually we'll get those answers. Jordan, thanks very much. Well, the countdown is on to next year's Invictus Games, and ahead of the competition, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex are here in B.C. That's right, and as Troy Charles reports, Harry and Meghan visited with athletes in Whistler today, where they are busy training for the big event. On this Valentine's Day, all eyes were on a certain couple. As Prince Harry and his wife Meghan Markle were in Whistler to kick off the countdown to the 2025 Invictus Games. The competition for wounded, injured and sick service personnel and veterans is taking place next February in Whistler and Vancouver, bringing together up to 550 competitors from over 20 nations. Now this upcoming 7th edition of the Invictus Games is a special one as it's the first time that winter adaptive sports will be part of the competition. And right now here on Whistler, some of the athletes are learning their new sports for the first time. Those new sports include alpine snowboarding and skiing, which Harry himself tried out on a sit-ski. 
The Duke of Sussex started the Invictus Games in 2014 after drawing on his own experiences serving in Afghanistan. Another veteran of Afghanistan is American Ivan Marrera. He lost his left hand in a vehicle rollover accident in 2014. The 2025 Invictus Games will be his second. I trained in uh, snowboarding, very challenging, but it was a lot of fun. And then today was alpine skiing, which is uh, also challenging, uh, but it's just incredible experience. My first time uh, actually participating in sports like this. Invictus athletes are in Whistler this week for a training camp to help their home nations build year-round adaptive sports programs. This is a chance for them to get as proficient as they can. One of the things that's great about Invictus is that we don't choose our athletes necessarily by whether or not they'll win gold, but how much they'll benefit from the therapy. Master Sergeant Morera is a prime beneficiary of that therapy. Help me mentally and strengthen me and uh, help build resilience mentally because I'm now I'm able to push myself uh, for another purpose, which is representing either my branch of service or uh, United States of America and Invictus Games. Harry and Megan will be in the province for a few more days as they visit with the athletes who will be the stars of the 2025 Games. Troy Charles, Global News. And coming up, eight is enough for Mike DeYoung. What's next? Uh, lots of uh, uh, speculation about that. After eight terms in the legislature, why the BC United MLA says he won't be seeking re-election. Plus, would you like a rose? How Comox Cupid is spreading the love on Valentine's Day. After 30 years in the BC legislature, Abbotsford MLA Mike DeYoung is wrapping up his career, at least in provincial politics. DeYoung served eight terms, and as Richard Zussman reports, his departure represents a sea change for BC United. Mike DeYoung has walked these halls thousands of times during his nearly 30 years as an MLA, but these strolls will soon stop. There have been frustrating days over the, over the years, but uh, the, the, the privilege and joy I have derived from, from being here is, is a gift. DeYoung will be running again in October. The eight-term MLA now representing Abbotsford West, first winning for the BC Liberals back in 1994. Currently, the longest-serving MLA and third longest in history, having served as finance, health, public safety minister, as well as attorney general. While we might disagree uh, that he, he would be friendly, uh, he would be willing to engage, and he would be clear about where his lines were, where he would agree and where he wouldn't. For BC United, this is a double-edged sword. Kevin Falcon now has an opportunity to renew, recruit new candidates, present a fresh face for the party. But of the 28 seats the party won back in 2020, in 11 of those ridings, incumbents aren't running again. The rebranding exercise has not gone well, and people don't know who the party is. And when so many of the old guard retire, then you lose the incumbency advantage. Who's ready for some common sense? DeYoung may still have a future in politics. The federal conservatives have asked him to consider running for them. I haven't made uh, decisions, though, uh, final decisions. He would be a huge catch. Uh, frankly, I think uh, he's a bigger catch for them than he, they are for him. As for his legacy, DeYoung reflecting on his role in the historic confidence vote that ended 16 years of BC Liberal rule. The strength of our democracy is that these transitions take place publicly. And it wasn't fun, right? It wasn't fun to go in there knowing what the result would be. All right.
And even though it wasn't always fun, DeYoung set to glide off just as he started, with a smile on his face. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Let's bring in Keith Baldry now, who's been there basically every step of the way. Keith, uh, 30 yeah. years is a long time in the legislature. How did Mike DeYoung first get into politics? Yeah, he was a young lawyer and approached by the B.C. Liberal Party to run in a really pivotal historic by-election in the riding of Matsqui, which is currently Abbotsford West, back in February 1994. And he won a historic win over social credit icon Grace McCarthy, longtime cabinet minister, by just 42 votes. And there's a theory, a view, that if he hadn't won and if Grace McCarthy had won, she had a good chance of rebuilding the social credit party and would have made it very difficult for the B.C. Liberal Party to get that foothold and become ultimately, the free enterprise coalition alternative to the NDP, a point that Mike DeYoung, when I asked him about it today, agreed with. The free enterprise coalition took another election after that one to coalesce around the, uh, the BC Liberal Party. Funny, we're having similar conversations today in a, different, in a different context. Add in a, uh, the grand dam of BC politics, uh, a woman who um, commanded quite a presence here in this place and uh, the Legislative Assembly, and, and that process of coalescing becomes even more complicated. So how that would have uh, turned out, it undoubtedly would have become more complicated, yeah. So you can neatly bookend Mike DeYoung's provincial political career, guys. So again, his arrival uh, made it much easier for the BC Liberal Party to form that free enterprise coalition, ultimately over about uh, another seven years. And his departure is coming at a time when that free enterprise coalition seems to be literally falling apart as the gulf widens between BC United and BC Conservatives. So certainly a legacy for Mike DeYoung, and we'll see where he goes next. Yeah, very curious, as are a lot of people. Thanks very much, Keith. Right. Coming up, panic at the Super Bowl parade. When the shooting started, I, like many others, ran and ran for safety. Deadly gunfire at Kansas City's victory party and the latest on the injured. And an alarming spike in syphilis, the growing number of cases, and why health officials are especially concerned for pregnant people. I'm Jay Durant from Global News, inviting you to the Latako Kunal 2024 BC Winter Games, a celebration of sport and community, February 22nd to the 25th. Competitions are free to watch. Visit bcgames.org. A shooting rocked Kansas City on a day where as many as a million people had gathered to celebrate their Super Bowl champions. At least one person is dead and up to two dozen more are injured, many of them children. Crowds ran from the parade site, some taking cover behind vehicles, some in tears. Injured people were loaded into ambulances as emergency crews filled the streets. Someone said oh, it was a fire, and then she comes running and she's like, no, it's shots fired. And so we started listening to her, and then that's when everybody started... Yeah, and I was just telling everybody to get down, get down, and then like get out the way. And then... Just minutes earlier, the streets of Kansas City were packed with fans cheering the Chiefs' Super Bowl victory. A law enforcement source tells CBS News the shooting does not appear to be the result of terrorism or extremism at this time. The police chief said the people of Kansas City deserve better. I'm angry at what happened today because of bad actors, which were very few. This tragedy occurred even in the presence of uniformed law enforcement officers who again ran towards them and took them into custody. This local TV crew was there when the shots were fired. 
I was actually down on the, the ground and Jillian was up on the riser. I looked up at you, Jillian, and you said, get up here right now. Right. We saw people running out of Union Station on the east side of the doors um, pretty frantically. And at that moment, we were receiving information that we needed to change where we were. Unseasonably warm weather had brought as many as a million people to the parade, a celebration suddenly eclipsed by violence. Don Yabakis, CBS News. Fair warning as we celebrate Valentine's Day. Canada is seeing an alarming surge of syphilis, with the number of cases doubling in the last few years. As Kyle Benning reports, public health officials are urging people to protect themselves. Canada's top doctor is warning people about the sharp increase in syphilis cases across the country. The main message is for people to test and take measures to prevent serious symptoms. In a public statement, Chief Public Health Officer Dr. Teresa Tam says the bacterial infection is largely preventable and treatable. She says in 2022, there were nearly 14,000 cases of infectious syphilis and 117 cases of early congenital syphilis. That happens when a pregnant person passes syphilis to their child. These numbers represent a doubling in infectious syphilis and a six-fold increase in congenital syphilis in Canada compared to 2018. Congenital syphilis can have serious health consequences, including stillbirth. If untreated, syphilis can affect the heart, brain, blood vessels, and nervous system. People can sometimes present with stroke-like symptoms, and it can actually be life-threatening. So um, there's really a, a, um, a whole range of, of symptoms that you may get when syphilis impacts different organs of the body. Dr. Tam urges Canadians to overcome the stigma of sexually transmitted infections and to get tested when becoming sexually active with new or multiple partners or becoming pregnant. Syphilis might not show noticeable symptoms in its early stages, allowing it to spread easily. Doctors note safe sex practices prevent the spread of the infection. Kyle Benning, Global News. Still to come, what George Vancouver really thought of the Pacific Coast. That letter is actually the most valuable single item we have in the archives holding. Real talk from the city's namesake and other surprising discoveries in the Vancouver archives. And the Phil Kessel comeback. What the three-time Stanley Cup champion could do for the Canucks if he gets back in shape. We're all ready where BC starts its mornings. It's really humbling. It's a real privilege, to be honest. Time in the morning with your kids and getting ready for work, that's precious. That's why Sonia, Mark, Caitlin, and myself work so hard to keep British Columbians informed. Our job is to prepare you for the day ahead. We deliver the news, but we get to have a bit of fun. I want people to start their day with a smile. We all do it because we love it, and you feed off that passion. Wake up to Global News Morning. Weekdays from 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. We are BC's News. All right, Christy Gordon is here with us, and I don't know if this is an official meteorological phenomenon, Christy, but I think love is in the air today. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is an official because look. It's blowing in there from you the go. east. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, blowing in from the east and being lit up on the science world. Yes, love is definitely in the air. Thank you to Dickenzie yeah, for that great shot. Um, you know what else is blowing in from, well, the south actually, not from the east, is the potential for snowfall. We had a little bit of wet snow in parts of Victoria today for a brief period, but the main event is now starting to push in. And it does look like, according to the computer models, that we'll see some snowfall across Victoria. So there it is shifting east, sorry, 
I, now it's in my head, Chris, shift, shifting in from the south. Uh, so we'll see that overnight and into tomorrow morning. Here's a look at the timeline. So we're mainly impacting uh, areas like Victoria, potentially over towards Souk and could be as far north as Duncan. It's a little bit of snowfall that could also be in through the Fraser Valley region, but it really is just a brief period. You can see it fizzles out quite a bit and we're not expecting much in Metro Vancouver, but I wouldn't rule out a flake or two. So don't be surprised if you saw, saw that, but certainly we're not expecting much. And meanwhile, across the rest of the province, it's cold, but it is sunny. That's the main plan. But that system is also going to impact just the southern portions of the southern interior. The Soyuz and maybe up towards Penticton, expecting a few flurries. And then you can see that in Victoria, maybe up towards Nanaimo and over towards Port Alberni. We're keeping in that chance of a flurry or shower. And then I've put it into the icons just in the far southern region. So White Rock, maybe into Surrey, as well as Abbotsford and out towards Chilliwack. But otherwise, maybe Mainly cloudy for our skies tomorrow, but it will be bright into our Friday. We're expecting a little bit of sun in the morning, increasing cloud in the afternoon, and highlighting the fact that we do have a few showers in the forecast for the weekend. It really is going to be light precipitation, which is good news because it's family day weekend. You'll be able to still get out and do stuff, but it also means a little bit of snow for the local mountains, which will be great. Tonight, Central Windows weather window coming to you from Boundary Bay, showing the blue sky that we had today. But one other thing, it's a little bit tough to tell, but these are cal Calvin Helmholtz waves off in the distance. We've talked about them before. They're they look like waves in the clouds, but this is sort of um, post Calvin Helmholtz waves where they've deteriorated a little bit. So thanks so much to James for that one. Back mm. to you too. Happy nice Valentine's Day. Thanks, Christy. That's great. All right, a Comox Valley resident known as the Flower Man is once again transforming into Comox Cupid to spread love this Valentine's Day. J.D. Ludlow started a Facebook group four years ago in hopes of spreading joy and happiness within the community. Ever since, he's been dressing up on Valentine's Day as Cupid, handing out roses and other treats. This year, Ludlow and his crew traveled by BC Transit bus to several businesses, schools, and hospitals. It's just endless. You know, they, oh, I love your flowers. Oh, that brought a smile to my face. You know, it's a, uh, it really um, uh, lets everybody's guard down. When they see what I do, uh, it brings a smile to everybody. Ludlow says he now receives donations from all over the world in support of his Valentine's mission. He gives out a lot of chocolate. That's a big expense, so mm -hmm. those donations go a long way. All right, let's check in with Squire now for a look ahead to sports. Well, we're going to take a trip to Mexico to see how the Whitecaps are doing in their game tonight against Tigris. And also we'll check in in Abbotsford to see how Phil Kessel looked in his skate with the Canucks. Can't wait. Thanks very much, Squire. Also ahead, real talk from Captain Vancouver. The letter he wrote that is now the most valuable artifact at the city archives that bear his name. Caps did pretty well in the first game between these two teams. Unexpectedly, actually. Mm -hmm. This is game two of their uh, total goal Champions Cup series with Tigris of Mexico. Now, um, this game is down in Monterey. The first game was a one-all draw. That was played in Langford. What is interesting is I'm not really sure the Whitecaps expected to be in this position where they could actually win this 
series. Tigres has been playing league games before facing Vancouver, while the Whitecaps had played only exhibition games at their camp over in Spain before this series. And quite frankly, actually, Vancouver could have won the first game. I think Tigris was a bit lucky to get a draw. But one thing, whether it's club soccer or international soccer, it's always hard to win down in Mexico. So let's see what was happening or what has been happening so far. First half, Tigris actually looked not very dangerous. The Whitecaps had a good chance here. Matias Laborda goes up, gets the head on this corner, but doesn't hit the back of the net. Then in the second half, Tigres comes out with a little more fire. And it's uh, Luis Quinones as this ball bounces off the crossbar and then just drops right on his foot. Uh-huh. So now the Whitecaps need to get one to keep this thing going. And they have a great chance here. Great chance. Brian White, though, tries to get it across to Ryan Gold. Maybe he should have taken the shot. That didn't work out. And that didn't work out. But it's still going. 1-0 for Tigres. The NHL's Ironman is temporarily hanging out with the Abbotsford Canucks. Phil Kessel is there to see if he can impress Vancouver Canucks management, who know him pretty well from his days in Pittsburgh, impressed him enough to sign him to a contract for the rest of this season. Now, he worked out today with the baby Canucks, didn't want to talk to the media afterwards. I'm thinking he might have been out of breath because he looked a little tired at times, which, since he hasn't played this year, is understandable. Phil Kessel hasn't played an NHL game since the first round of last year's playoffs with Vegas, and he won't be playing one again until he signs a new contract. Kessel's in Abbotsford skating with the AHL Canucks, and the plan for the time being is to do just that, skate, no games. Well, he's here to skate and, and work out, and as far as the plan, I'm, I don't know the plan. Uh, we'll see how, you know, take it day by day here, but he's, he's here now and uh, good for our guys. And there's Phil Kessel from Madison, Wisconsin, and look at the joy as he pumps the Stanley Cup. Kessel's a three-time Stanley Cup champion. His first two cups coming in Pittsburgh where Rick Tockett was an assistant coach and Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvine were in the front office together. It's a Pittsburgh connection that appears to be reuniting here with the Canucks. Yeah, it's great. It's, uh, he's a great guy and um, obviously had a great career so far. I mean, just last year, won a Stanley Cup. So having those guys around the room is uh, always a benefit and um, guys were excited. At 36 years of age, the Canucks, like the rest of us, are likely wondering how much, if any, Kessel has left in the tank. He currently owns the NHL's Ironman record with 1,064 consecutive games played. But also keep in mind, he didn't see the ice in the Golden Knights' final three playoff series en route to winning the Stanley Cup. He's obviously happy to be here, and uh, you know, there's something about being in the dressing room with other, other hockey players. People get energy from that, and he's no different. Jay Janower, Global Sports. Well, he would provide secondary scoring, I guess, if he gets in shape. But the Canucks are getting lots of secondary scoring from the guy right beside me, Connor Garland. And Dakota Joshua last night had a three-point game. Garland had two goals in that win over Chicago. And once again, they keep impressing us and they keep impressing the coach. It's great because some guys are getting, some, if they're in some slumps, other lines can pick it up. And I think the Garland line, you know, if we have some guys that are not scoring goals, um, they can, you know, chip in. So... Yeah, it's, it's just about when you're in an 82 game, you're, uh, schedule, uh, schedule, you're going to have certain guys have slumps, certain lines, and, um, you know, you, you pick it up, and right now they're picking up for us. 
BC Lions adding quarterbacks. Former Riders QB Jake Dolagala signed a one-year deal. Of course, yesterday they added uh, Dakota Prukop from the Bombers, so they are set when it comes to veteran quarterbacks behind Vernon Adams Jr. Uh, just under three months to go until training camp opens. And, of course, the Grey Cup is at BC Place this year. And maybe he'll be in that game. Who knows? You never know. Let's hope. Thanks, Squire. Up next, a royal cigarette butt and straight talk from Captain Vancouver. Just some of the unexpected and weird items in the Vancouver archives. It's time for the Variety Show of Hearts Telethon. Help transform the lives of BC kids on February 25th. Special appearances by Natalie Portman, Tom Cochran, Seth Rogen, and more. Visit variety.bc.ca. The CKNW Kids Fund Pink Shirt Day campaign recognizes the importance of diversity. Pink Shirt Day, Wednesday, February 28th. Presented by Fortis BC. Purchase this year's shirt at London Drugs. All right, last week we got a look at the 5 million or so photographs they're trying to catalog at the Vancouver Archives, but there's lots more good stuff in there. Some yeah. pretty strange stuff, Squire. That's true. I, I kind of followed Jay into the Vancouver City Archives and did a little something else. And uh, yeah, there are a lot of odds and ends, more odds and ends <laughs> at the Vancouver City Archives, and that's what tonight's story is about. This is Major Matthews, whose hobby of collecting all things Vancouver started our city archives. But some of the items he acquired were rather eccentric. It says Matthews Sugar Cube and Royal Cigarette Butt. There were things that Matthews would have acquired that we just would not take today. The Sugar Cube is from Vancouver's Diamond Jubilee Luncheon back in 1946, but it's not as regal as this. The Royal Cigarette Butt. So that cigarette, <laughs> right there, right there, was in the mouth of King George at one point. 1939, when King George VI and Queen Elizabeth were here for the royal visit, um, King and Queen were at City Hall. The mayor's assistant noticed that the king had stubbed out the cigarette that he had been smoking. Mrs. Hilda Pendermoss took it upon herself to take the cigarette butt as a souvenir. Now, it's not all cigarette butts and sugar cubes. There are also plans that never came to pass. Uh, this is a drawing of a possible uh, stadium in Little Mountain Park, which yep. is now Queen Elizabeth Park. Despite it being the Depression, the 1930s were big for stadium proposals. Here's another one for Vanier Park, which obviously never happened. Not only is it a, a stadium, but it is apparently a civic auditorium as well, right? right? So doing double duty, kind of like BC Place does. Yeah. The most historic document comes from this man, George Vancouver himself, a letter he wrote while anchored in Nootka Sound telling England there was no Northwest Passage and also complaining about his job. I am once more entrapped in this infernal ocean and am totally at loss as to say when I shall be able to quit it. That letter is actually the most valuable single item we have in the archives holdings. And maybe if George knew they would name the city after him, he might not have been so eager to leave. Wow. He probably also was upset that one day seagulls would go to the bathroom on his face. <laughs> <laughs> that might have also been a If problem. he'd known. That's not the only statue of him either. There's that one on the top of the legislature, too, that probably gets a lot of the same. Maybe even issue. more. Well, he was a Maybe sailor. He should have been used to birds doing that. <laughs> you know, 
It's like the name of the woman who picked up the cigarette butt, Mrs. Hilda Pendergrass or yes. Pendergrass or something like that. It's a great name. More amazing BC history. Thanks very much for sharing that with us, Squire. That was good stuff. Okay, last word on weather before we go. Christy. Sure. So, uh, again, a slight chance of a flurry across southern Vancouver Island tomorrow, maybe this far southern regions of uh, the lower mainland, but otherwise mainly cloudy tomorrow, sunshine on Friday, showers over the weekend. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a great night. Good night, all. Happy Valentine's Day as well.